0: Well, good morning. Uh, My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Indelible Grace Church, and I'm sad that we can't be together uh, in person today at the park. I'm sad that this has been a long season um, of not being able to be together, not seeing each other face-to-face, of being able to shake hands and exchange hugs and greet each other and have fellowship with one another in the ways that we would normally be able to. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series on the spiritual disciplines, and one of the reasons I'm particularly sad this morning that we cannot be together in person, even if it's with masks on, is because this morning we're talking about worship. And worship is something that the people of God do together. It's, as we talk this morning, we'll see that it's a part of our whole life, but it's also something that we do together as a community And so it's particularly painful when we can't gather together in the way that we would, that we can't have fellowship with one another, that we can't be encouraged by hearing um, others even sing or confess with us. And so this morning, as we look at worship as a spiritual discipline, I have two points outlined for you in your bulletin. The first point is, what is worship? And the second is, how do we worship? And what we're going to see with this, what we're going to see from God's Word in Colossians is that our worship is distinct. It's distinct because of who our God is. Our worship does not look like the way that the world worships. And worship is something that actually all of us do. Um, I truly believe that there is no one who has lived who could not say they did not worship. Uh, even if they were an atheist or as an agnostic, to some extent we all worship. There's something that we revere. There's something that we desire. There's something that our heart clings to that we rely upon that we trust and that is actually what we worship or to borrow a phrase from a man named G.K. Beale, who's a uh, a theologian he says what we worship we resemble either for our ruin or for our restoration so this is a big part of what we're going to talk about this morning so if you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. In a moment I'll read for us verses 12 through 17. But as we're jumping into the middle of a book, I wanted to just give a little context to the book. See the the letter to the to the Colossians focuses on the lordship of Jesus Christ. It focuses on the church and that the church is God's people and then how do they live? And so that's where we'll be hopping in at the beginning of chapter 3 in Paul writes that in light of that we've been buried in death and raised to newness of life in Christ, that we should put to death the things that came before. Uh, And he has a list of sin that he concludes is idolatry and says that God's wrath is coming against this idolatry. And then we're told to put on then, and we're given what worship is, what we should actually look like as the worshiping people of God. And so if you would now look with me at God's word together. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord, and it is given for our good. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we um, come to you as a people um, gathered but scattered, Um, not together, but coming together to um, praise you, to worship you to live life together, um, even during these challenging times. And Lord, we we turn now to to look at your word. And I pray that during this time, we would consider um, what worship is, um, how it is distinct, how you redeem us, you make us your people, how you make for yourself a worshiping people that's under the reign and the rule and the peace of Christ. And that's actually how we're supposed to live as brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be identified um, by our reflecting of you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we come to a book of the Bible, it's helpful to know a little bit of context, especially when we reach the epistles and the letters that are written. In reading, if we were to read Colossians from beginning to end right now, we would see some different things that are going on. Some of it's the reason, the purpose for why the letter is written. But a couple of brief things about Colossae, See, the Colossae people, the Colossians, not just the church, but the whole people, it was a pretty unremarkable and unimportant city. It wasn't on any major routes. Uh, their main export was scarlet wool and grapes and figs, which was pretty common for the Greco-Roman world. But one of the unique things we can see about Colossae, both from history and from archaeology, is the number of temples that they had. See, in Colossae, this kind of small and unimportant city, there were at least eight temples. And one of the ways we can, we can date this with confidence is not only the remnants of some buildings, but the coins. See, the city that you lived in would have the gods of that city reflected on the money. Uh, and you can even find online the, the different coins um, that were in the city of Colossae. Or if you have a study Bible, perhaps it even has a photo. And... This culture was built around worship. The city itself, like many Greco-Roman cities, will be built around worship. And it was very plural worship, much like our own world, much like our own culture right now of being very religiously plural. See, what it would be, the, the, the largest temple in the city of Classe was Sibili, who was a fertility goddess. And so you would go and worship this goddess if you had a problem with fertility, And there was a god of rain, which was was exceptionally common. And if your crop was not doing well, you would go and you would worship at that temple. And so worship was not a common everyday practice. Worship was not actually the lifestyle. Worship was not the ethic of the Roman world. And so Christians would seem very odd. Because their worship was not something of, I have a problem Now let me go worship. Let me go appeal to this deity that they might help me with my problem. Instead, their worship is actually meant to be with their whole lives. They gather together as brothers and sisters. They live life together. They sing. They hear the preaching of the word. They feast at the Lord's table. They baptize. And so Christians would seem very odd, because they were actually a worshiping people. And so one of the big things as we're beginning to answer this first question of what is worship that I want to point out is that worship is actually an ethic. An ethic is the way that we live our lives. And so worship is actually an ethic. And I'm going to show from the text now, why is this true? Why is worship so different for God's people? Why is worship so different than, I have this problem Maybe this deity can give me a solution. If you look back with me at verse 12, I just want to pick a couple things out here right off the bat. Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And let's stop right there for a second because there's, there's something so exciting there, especially as we've been talking about worship, because the, the very things that it starts with is this God has actually chosen you. This God has elected you. Or as First John says, we love because he first loved us. And we're holy, we're, we're set apart, and we're called his beloved. We're not going with gifts to simply try to appease or win favor, but we're his chosen ones, holy and beloved. So right off the bat, we see this: that worship is distinct. Christian worship is distinct. And we'll, we'll talk about it more as a spiritual discipline in my second point. But it's so distinct because of who our God is. We're a people with an identity that's given to us by our God. Our God who reconciles and makes for himself a people. And in the pages of scripture, we see from beginning to end, we see this talk of idolatry. And we have it even here in the letter of Colossians. And idolatry is something we don't, Want to lose track of. We see earlier, if you uh, look up farther in your Bible uh, or scroll up on your phone, in Colossians 3, we see a list of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We see that idolatry is identified with our sin. And then it goes on in verse, or in verse 6 on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Our, our worship should be taken seriously, our ethic of how we live should be taken seriously. And so idolatry, here's kind of our pocket definition for this morning of idolatry. Idolatry is to worship anything other than God or to worship the only true God in false ways. I'll say that again. Idolatry is to worship anything other than God or to worship the only true God in false ways. Two brief points on that. We see throughout the Old Testament, particularly if you read the book of Exodus, this struggle that God's people have with idolatry. And we see when when they make idols, that they, they make them in their own image. They make them to reflect things that they actually want or desire. And that we see, Scripture actually paints them, that they resemble what they worship. When they make a God that has eyes but can't see, when they make a God and carve for Him ears, but he can't hear, God describes those people as people that do not see and people who do not hear. Or as Romans 1 says, they reject the truth of God and exchange it for a lie. And we, That was the first part of our definition is that idolatry is to worship anything other than God. And the second point is to also worship the, the only true God in false ways. And this is something we also see Israel struggle with. It's also something we struggle with. We struggle with the temptation to make God in our own image, to make him an ultimate version of ourselves, which just isn't true. And one of the ways that Israel does this, a story that's very familiar in Exodus, is the story of the golden calf. Moses goes up onto the mountain and is receiving the Ten Commandments, and the people go to Aaron, their priests, and say, make for us our God. So Aaron says, give me your rings, give me your earrings, give me your bracelets. And he melts them down and he makes a golden calf. And then Aaron doesn't go, here's a God. He goes and says, this is your God who led you out of slavery in Egypt. They're worshiping God in a way he's not intended to. In best case scenario, Aaron's trying to honor God by showing him as a young, strong bull. But that is not our God. That is a God that's actually made in our own image. And the wrath of God comes against such idolatry. And so worship is the juxtaposed thing to idolatry. And here's our short definition of worship for this morning. Worship is the due response of God's people. So idolatry is worshiping anything other than God or worshiping Him in false ways. And worship is the due response of God's people. And see, our worship actually resembles our God. Look back with me at Colossians. I'll start in chapter or in verse 12 again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. See, th- this list that we see here, right off the bat, if you read that list, if that list could describe your family and your home, I wanna live there. If it described the place that you work, I want to work. There are people who are kind and humble and patient. They forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven them, and the peace of Christ reigns. Well, this is to be. This is to be the worshiping people. What is worship? It's it's God's people responding to Him, praising Him together. And so the, this worship that we have actually resembles our God, because if you read back through that list, there's. Places we could go to all over Scripture to show that the Lord is compassionate, that he's kind, that he's humble, that he's meek, that he's patient, that he forgives, and we also then must forgive. This is where literally seeing the character of God defines the character of his people. Our worship is distinct because of the God that we worship. A way we could picture this is the mirror of Erised in Harry Potter. It's a children's book. It's not very subtle. Erised is the word desire, spelt backwards. And this mirror was in the school, and Harry, this young orphan wizard boy, goes and he finds it. And when he looks in the mirror, he sees what the longing of his heart would be, of any orphan boy. He sees his parents there, smiling at him. And so Harry does the next logical thing, and he runs back to his dormitory and gets his best friend, Ron, and brings him back there to put him in front of the mirror so that he can look and see his parents. And when his friend stands in front of the mirror, he sees himself taller, a sports champion, a prefect, a leader. He was the youngest sibling in his family, his friend, and he's finally not overshadowed by his brother's accomplishments. He's number one. That's what he sees. And they have this conversation of, well, do you think it shows the future? No, it can't show the future because my parents are dead. And Harry finds this character as he's staring at the things that he desires most, the thing that his heart longs for, he finds himself going back again and again and again. And he goes and he sits in front of the mirror when he should be sleeping. And then the headmaster, his mentor, Dumbledore, comes and meets him there one night and tells him, I assume you know what this mirror does by now. This mirror shows the desire of a man's heart. But be warned, you can waste away your whole life staring in the mirror. The happiest man in the world would be able to look in the mirror and see only himself. And so I tell this not only because I enjoy Harry Potter, but I think it helps us understand a part of what I'm getting at with worship and idolatry. See our hearts as John Calvin put it are idol factories. We find it so easy to praise other things for our hearts to cling to other things, to rely on other things. We say things of like well you know I I'll be able to focus on my worship as a lifestyle or even getting back to get the gathered worship of the people of God when life's easier. I'll be able to do that when I have a house. You know, if I could just grind really hard at work right now, one day I could take this seriously. Or you know what? I have young kids right now, and it's just really hard to get them to behave. And so I'll focus on that again some other day. And we end up showing where our desires, where our priorities lie when we do those things. And so for what we actually see when we see the desires of our heart is typically we're seeing actually our sin, we're seeing idolatry, we're seeing things that we we put in God's place instead of Him. And what allows us to do this is when we come to Scripture, when we come to God's Word, and we see it simply as a list of inspirational quotes, when we see it as just a self-help book, when we see religion, like the people at Colossae saw it, of, I go to this God because this God might be able to solve my problem. That's my worship. It's an exchange. I'll do this if you do this. And instead, what we come to when we come to God's word and we read it, we actually encounter a manual of worship. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, God is teaching and making for himself a people that we see described here in Colossians, this this list of characteristics that we see of what this community is meant to be like. God has been making for himself this worshiping people throughout all of time. And so to put to death our idols and to worship comes back to that quote that I read at the beginning of what we worship, we resemble, either for ruin or restoration. And if you're staring in a mirror of your idolatry, of things that if you think if X, Y, and Z could go better, I would therefore be happier, or if I could just manage my sin better, Then I could come back to the church. Or then, you know what, once I get control of this sin in my life, I'll join a community group. Let me clean myself up first. And then I'll be in the community of the people of God. And the truth is, the community of a worshiping people is messy. What's one of the things that we see in the passage here is that we actually have to forgive one another. It assumes that we're going to hurt one another. Life together, living life and brushing shoulders together, means that we will inevitably hurt one another. And this worshiping people of God, we're going to forgive because he's forgiven us. We're going to show the same mercy that he's been shown. And it's actually going to show who our God is in how we act. Even in conflict, we worship by showing who our God is. Look back at verse 15 with me and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. This point that I've been getting to with that that the mirror of error said even as an illustration is that when we look at our idols they only bring death. When we resemble things that are dead that cannot hear that cannot see we will only find death. So when Christ reigns he doesn't share the throne. There's no room for your idol to sit on the arm of his chair. When your idols reign, Christ is not reigning. And so it's like um, from a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching in Deuteronomy that the people of God are told that before you lies the path of blessing or cursing, the path of life or the path of death. Well, before this worshiping people of God is either, as verse 5 says, putting to death, this idolatry, and putting on being God's chosen, holy, and beloved. The way in which we live, the ethic of how we live our life, shows who our God is. So what is worship? It's the due response of the people of God. And we cannot forget that there is a response to it. Worship is not just singing. Worship is not just attending a Sunday service. Worship is actually an ethic. It's how we live our entire life life. Let's transition now to my second point of how do we worship? And the way in which we worship, we have several things here in our text that we see drawn out explicitly. When we we come together in worship um, as a church, there's different habits or different liturgies or different ways we approach the service. And the way that we approach the service is we begin with the call to worship. and That's not listed in this text here, but the call to worship is actually meant to resemble that God is the one who calls his people into worship. And I know for me that there's days where it was hard to get my toddler in the car, and he kicked his shoe off five times while I was walking over to set up the lawn chairs, and he's asking to go on the slide a thousand times. And what actually happens is that in the call to worship, my mouth begins talking and my heart has to catch up. And I think that's the wonderful thing about having a, a flow, a liturgy, a rhythm to church, is that our heart actually begins to catch up to our mouth. We begin confessing what God has done, that he's actually calling us into worship and that we're singing. And so in worship, I've hinted at this already in the sermon, there, there's two things I want to unpack here. There's a vertical focus to worship, but there's also a horizontal dimension. By no means did I coin this. I'm stealing this from a man named John Frame. Wonderful guy if you want to check out any of his books. But the vertical focus is that when we come together, we're coming together to praise the only true and living God. That's the vertical focus of worship. That is, that is our goal. It is our due response as His people The horizontal dimension, if you look back through this passage, even just scanning it quickly, we see that it's plural, as God's chosen ones, talking about community and forgiveness. And then we essentially have what we could only acquaint to in English really as y'all, because we have a plural you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural. This is a community identity. And so this is the horizontal dimension of worship, that actually when we gather together, But also when we scatter, there's there's a life together uh, in this ethic, in this living as God's people. And for the, the Christians, the Colossians, this would make them odd because worship was meant for, I need X, I'll go do Y, and maybe I'll get Z. And so instead, we see this people that gathers together and look back with me at verse 16 and following. There's a ton of other places we could go to to see that this is God's intention for our worship. A a common one, um, I'll read briefly here, is Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is actually the identity of this, this worshiping people. How do they worship? Well, it's... with their lives, as we've talked about, that it's actually the ethic of how Christians live, but also it's this vertical focus, praising God, our due response, and this horizontal dimension is that it's actually communal in nature, that there's actually something we do together. And I think one of the ways we can most sharply see this is perhaps you're like me, and even though you are, if you can't sing, you're like me, but perhaps if you can sing, uh, maybe you've appreciated before hearing people in unison sing a, a sea shanty or a sports song or a military cadence walking down the road. And there's this insane unity as mouths together in harmony make a noise as they uh, have one heart and one mouth in that moment to do something. There's this unity. So even the singing together. Not just church on Sundays, but singing together is one of the realities of how we worship as Christians. And there's this wonderful quote. This is how uh, John Calvin begins his commentary um, or brief commentary on some of the Psalms. He says that Christ is the great choir master who tunes our hearts to sing God's praise. And I love it so much. I'm going to say it a second time. Christ is the great choir master who tunes our hearts to sing God's praise. And see, What we see here is that the word of Christ dwelling richly in us, this is where I'm likening it, or Calvin likens it, to a choir master. And as I said before, I cannot sing at all. If you've been seated near me during church at the park, you'll be thankful I'm wearing a mask because it keeps the the tone deafness down. Mm -hmm. But when we actually sing together, it's like Christ is the choir master. I've never sung in a choir. As I said, I can't sing but my undergrad had four different choirs and they would come singing at the chapel and you would hear just this beautiful harmony come together between voices because the choir master took the time to have them rehearse and learn what key they were singing in. I don't know a lot about singing. What key they were singing in, who was taking the high notes and the low notes, they're tuned together and we are to be tuned together by God's word. So that's one of the first ways of how do we worship is we're actually, we're tuned together. Not only is it communal, but we're tuned together by Christ. And we only worship in Christ. As the last verse says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is not something we could do. We could not be free of our own idols without the work and labor and love of Jesus Christ for us. And so in all of these things, as we're talking about the worship, it's a spiritual discipline. And our church's catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And we see the answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And this community that we read about here in Colossians, this community that who would not want to be a part of this community that is compassionate, kind, humble, patient, this community is who he is making, this worshiping people. And our worship is distinct because it shows who our God is. It actually reflects his character. How we live, the ethic, the worship of our life shows who our God is. And we could, we could picture it in this, this following way. Perhaps, like me as a kid, you'd get a chocolate Easter bunny. On Easter morning, and pretty soon we'll start seeing them probably pop up in stores. And there, there's two different types of these chocolate Easter bunnies that are molded there's the good kind and the bad kind. The bad kind are the hollow ones, where when you get it and you see it, especially as a little kid, if you put back on your five year old hat for a second, when you see a chocolate bunny and it's huge, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so much chocolate. That looks so good. And you know you're not actually going to be able to eat all of it in one sitting because it's huge. And then if you bite into one of those hollow bunnies, it just crumbles. Just as much ends up on the table as it ended up in your mouth. And you're kind of like, I thought, I thought this was like this huge bar of chocolate. That's the bad kind. The good kind is when you pick up the box and it's hefty. And it's solid. And you know you can't actually eat it all on your own. Mom and dad are going to have you share it with your siblings. Or you're going to keep covering it in a ziplock and eat it over several days. The difference between these two Easter bunnies, the good one and the bad one, our idolatry is like that hollow Easter bunny. It looks good. It crumbles and it falls apart and it's disappointing. It promises so much, but it's like the promises at the end of a treadmill. The promise line just keeps moving again and again and again. But that solid chocolate bunny is like our worship of how do we worship. It's, we're probably going to have to share it. It's solid. It's substantial. It's rich. It's deep. And this is why our worship is not just sounds that come out of our mouth. Our worship is not just songs, but it's actually, it only comes from the heart. And it can only come from the heart if we've been transformed by Jesus. This is why all of this, this letter of Colossians is all based around that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him and through him, all things hold together. This is our worship, that we've been buried with him and raised to newness of life. Therefore, put to death your idols. And put on this reality that's been bought for you because you're God's chosen, holy, and beloved. And let Christ's peace reign in your life and let his word dwell in you richly and in your community be changed by it. Worship is an ethic. Worship is actually a lifestyle of the people of God. I feel like when we talk about worship, there's kind of two main rebuttals that kind of tend to come up. And one of them is definitely a, a personal experience of mine. And that's the difference between worship A.D. and B.C. And what I mean by that is um, before children and after diapers. That changes the way we attend worship service. I don't know how many times I've heard it or I've heard myself even say it, of that it was so much easier to go to church B.C. before kids you, you could spend more time socializing, having fellowship. It was easier to sing. You weren't distracted. It was easier to listen to the sermon or take notes. Your kid wasn't coloring on your bulletin. And it becomes hard. There's, there's a wonderful book that I, I, I recommend that I'm going to talk a little bit about next. It's called Parenting in the Pews. I can't remember who it's by right now, but it really changed my perspective as it was just reflecting on that. The reality is actually when we take our kids to worship, we're actually teaching them how to worship. It's not coming and needing to entertain them with other things. It's, although you'll see my son with a coloring book, and it's not, oh, do I have enough snacks to keep you satisfied? Those are realities of being a toddler or being a child at a park or even in a, in a big room with chairs. But that we actually are teaching our kids to worship. And this goes back to a couple weeks ago when I was talking about Deuteronomy 6, of that we pass on the faith. Who will teach your child to worship? You teach your child to worship, and that you're, you, you're seeing and you're explaining the parts of the service. You're actually passing on the faith in doing that. You're getting to teach and catechize your child. It's almost like we could liken it to learning the piano. My mother tried so hard for me to learn the piano. She gave me lessons, but I would never practice. And practicing wasn't a part of our home. I took piano lessons for like four years, and I could maybe find middle C. Mm-hmm. Practicing was not a part of me. And if worship is not the lifestyle, if it's not the ethic of your home, and worship is just a Sunday morning that's re- removed and it's at a park or it's at a school or it's wherever, if worship's not actually a part of the family life, it's always going to feel odd. Because the reality is, if my mother would have dropped me off to play piano with the teacher and then playing the piano was a part of our home life, I could probably play the piano then today because I would have been practicing it would have been part of life, so worship as the ethic of god 's people as a worshiping community of living life together in this distinct way, worship is actually needs to be more than just Sundays because in sundays we 're actually explaining the parts of the service to our child we 're explaining farther what it means, and I feel like the the other common one is. I don't get anything out of it. This is the other common ob- objection to like Sunday morning worship. I don't, I don't get anything out of it. I'm bored. Um, it sounds like the pastors say the same thing every week. Um, you know, it's not the type of music that I like. Uh, f- fill in the blank. I'm sure we've all had one of those before. I feel like the biggest thing is actually the character of our hearts there and how we actually feel and approach worship. If it's a distinct thing or if it's a consumer thing, like the Colossians were struggling with, of if I go, maybe I'll get this. And in the Psalms, we see this reoccurring fla- phrase, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And I feel like in our individualistic culture, in the ways that we can feel unsatisfied, like we don't get anything out of coming together, of the worshiping of God's people, it's like we're coming to the church and saying, bless my soul, Lord, and it's coming with an expectation in your mouth and in your actions, but your heart was left at home. The worship was not actually a part of it. Preparing yourself for worship was not actually part of it. And in that, it's coming up, well, entertain me. I, I need you to be more engaging than the cue the, the of things in my Netflix. I need you to be more engaging than the other things I watch on YouTube. I need you to be more engaging than the video game that I'm about to beat. And the reality of that is while there's nothing wrong with enjoyment and spending time in things, the reality is that if we don't come to worship expecting to meet the only true and living God and that this is our response to him and this is actually our life and that our heart is actually in it and there's this transformation of putting off the old self and putting on the new self, then of course it would be boring. There's no life to that. That sounds dead. That sounds like the worship of the Colossae. That sounds like the person going to the temple of the fertility goddess of Sibili, who's just like, hey, I want to have a kid. You help me. I'll do this thing. What do I have to do? That's not actually worship. That's an exchange of good and services. That's like ringing out a self-checkout counter. There's no point to it. And so one of the things I said off the, the top of the sermon is that as we were going to look at worship... And talk about what is worship and how do we worship. And Pastor Wade's going to pick up and follow up more on worship next week too. Was that there's something extremely distinct about Christian worship. And the distinct thing that separates Christian worship from all other types of worship out there. We all worship. We all have something that we long for. And we end up resembling it. Either for our ruin or for our restoration. The distinct thing is who our God is and that we are made his people. And I don't know about you, but as I read through the book of Colossians as a whole, and when even I hit that in chapter one, verse 15, and this was most likely an early hymn of the church, by that point in the letter, I'm kind of ready to sing a little bit. I can't sing. You don't want me to sing next to you, but I'm ready to sing a little bit or I've said this to the students several times at youth group because we've been going through the book of Hebrews and we've reached chapter 10, which is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. And at that point in the book of Hebrews, there's been several times I'm like, I want to stop and like sing right now. Like I'm excited. Like my heart is on fire right now. And it's one of those things that 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 transformation, that's when we come to God, the, the spiritual discipline, the series that we're in, what we're doing all includes worship. The Bible, I said, is like a worship manual. Another example I use a lot with the students is that in the Bible, we're actually taught, how do I human? What does it actually look like to be an image bearer of God? So we come to God in worship, not because we are worthy, not because we deserve anything, but because of all that he has done. And when we long for that, we see ourselves transformed by the power of his spirit because of the work of his son. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for this this time that we could gather together, that we can um, have worship together as a people. Lord, I pray that even in these days of sheltering in place and of isolation, Lord, that we would find ways to worship as a community, to actually have lives of worship, life together, life unified, that we would seek this with all of our might, that we would seek This putting off the old, putting off our idolatry, and putting on the new. Lives that are are cherished, that are chosen, that are loved, that are set apart. Lord, we, we cannot do this on our own. We do this only by the work of your Son to redeem us, and by the power of your Spirit to transform us. Amen.